I'm going to read Psalm 126 to you. This is part two of a sermon that, part one I preached about a month ago here, and there's a lot of cognitive science that says, hey, about a month between a part one and a part two of a sermon is perfect for retention <laughs> and application. But here we go. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Speaking of Pau Gasol, Bruce Springsteen, singer-songwriter from New Jersey. You may have heard of him. And Bruce, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. There, he has a pantheon of songs, and arguably, there's one song above all the others that is his most important keystone song of them all. Anybody want to guess what might be that song? You just made Bruce sad. The, to me, and the BBC did a poll of rock critics a few years ago, asking the question, what is the best, most important pop or rock song of the 20th century? And the consensus number one pick was 1975's Born to Run, title track from that album by Bruce Springsteen. And he himself has said in different ways that Born to Run is his most important song. And he says, that song contains the most important line that I've ever written, and the rest of my recording and performing catalog excavates and explores this one line. And I'll give you a long version, then we'll take it apart from there. Will you walk with me out on the wire? Girl, I'm just a scared and a lonely rider, but I gotta find out how it feels. I wanna know if love is wild. I wanna know if love is real. Bruce says, that's the line. That's the idea. I want to know if love is real. And I get it. That's a romantic line. Come take a chance. Let's seize this moment. But I want to tell you, as a lifelong Bruce Springsteen fan, that Bruce is actually wrong. Never trust an artist interpreting an artist's art. So I want to know if love is wild. I want to know if love is real. That's an important line in the Springsteen canon, but as you look at the rest of his work, there's actually a different line in Born to Run that I think better summarizes everything that Bruce is about. I'll give you the long version. Someday, girl, I don't know when, we're going to get to that place where we really want to go and we'll walk in the sun. And it may, may or may not be true that right after that line, the chorus rings in, baby, we were born to run. But that's the idea. Someday, I don't know when, we're going to get to that place where we really want to go, 
And I think that's an important question for us, for people, for human beings. Someday, I don't know when, we're going to get to that place where we really want to go. Or will we? And that's the question that we're going to be thinking about here this morning. It's kind of like this. As we run, as we go, as we live, where are we actually going? Are we going anywhere? And yes, that's an idea that's a little bit out of step which ver with various currents in our culture right now. I guess it's more typical to say, well, it's the journey, not the destination, right? Who knows where we're going? But isn't life one grand, exotic adventure in the process? It's not the destination, it's the journey. Although I would submit to you that, at least in the West, that type of thinking is not natural, is not inborn, it's learned behavior for modern people. It has a ring of truth, culturally speaking. It's the journey, not the destination. But a contrasting case in point, picture, and some of you are in or have been in this phase, if not, just imagine yourself, say you're a parent driving kids around. And you've been driving for a while, and all of a sudden you realize and you say out loud, oh no, we're lost. And say you have little kids, toddlers, elementary school, various stages of car seats in the back. Oh no, we're lost. You've been driving around for, for a long time. Is this where the kids come back and say you, mommy or daddy? It's not the destination, it's the journey. Isn't this great? No, they're freaking out. <laughs> because all of a sudden they're realizing we don't know where we're going. This is actually a big problem. Or what is the quintessential and Many of us were probably this way when we were kids and can relate from personal experience. The quintessential question of a tired, cranky, hot kid on any type, even a short one, of a road trip, are we there yet? That's the natural impulse. Journey's fine. I hope we like it. But the destination is super important. And parenthetically, that's what Bruce has written about for the rest of his career. So you'll have songs like, This Hard Land, Let's Go Ride Together, But If You Can't Make It, Stay Hard, Stay Hungry, Stay Alive, and Meet Me If You Can in a Dream of This Hard Land. Or maybe his most important song of this century, same idea and almost the exact same words, Land of Hope and Dreams. That's where we all want to go. But all of us sometimes wonder, where am I? Where are we going? Will we get there and how? That's also a question in a lot of ways that comes to us naturally from Psalm 126, the psalm that I've read, a version of which we've sung earlier in the service as well, a Liberty Riverwards original song right there for those of you that might not know. Where are we going to end up? And that's a pressing question, especially when it gets sad. 
And the song that we sang earlier, based on Psalm 126, is appropriately a sad song. And it's tears, and it's toil, and we read of tears, we read of weeping in this psalm. What's this going to add up to? Where are we going? And the chorus line of this song, Psalm 126, is about restoration of fortunes. When the Lord restored our fortunes, the psalm begins. We were like those who dream. Or in verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Implication, we're not there yet. We haven't arrived. There's still more to go. Where are we going? How will we get there? Are we sure? So that's what we're going to be talking about in two parts for the rest of the sermon. Let's talk about where we're going and how to get there. And the where we're going part, I want to contrast, is it a feeling or is it a place? And then how do we get there? Will it be a grind or will it be a gift? So if you remember back into the cobwebs of memory, if you were here for part one of this sermon, I talked about two sets of alternatives, a common tendency in our cultural moment and then also invitation from the Creator. When it gets sad, what do we do? And that sermon we talked about, well, will all of these tears help us to focus or do we just want to forget? Are we leaning on God's good good faithfulness to us and providence or is it just a matter of fortune where we're not sure where any of this is going to go and it's all luck anyway? And so here we're going to talk about the feeling versus place, and then grind versus gift. Where are we going? What's the goal? What's the north star? I think a common alternative would be to turn inside and say, well, as a human being here in the 21st century, what I'm pursuing, what I'm about, is a sense of inner peace, inner contentment, inner satisfaction. That's what I'm going after right now. I think in a lot of ways, that that is the goal. That's the thing that we can be all about. Is it the case that there is cottage industry after cottage industry after cottage industry that's all about wellness, that's all about self-care, that's all about mindfulness? And again, this is where Christians are called to be people of nuance, where we, we see different extremes, different exaggerations, different pendulum swings. At one level, is there anything wrong with mindfulness, with self-care, with well-being and wellness? No, those are all great things. But at the same time, as we think about these things from a biblical perspective, I have a couple of concerns, namely these. If all it is is wellness, mindfulness, self-care in itself, my concern there is how confident can we be that after a certain point, we're not just indulging our own self and our own selfishness. And this is tricky. But is there a braking mechanism anywhere on the bus if it's just me, 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 and what I need? A vision of human flourishing that the scriptures give us, that the gospel gives us, is that for us to really press ahead and grow in the ways that God has created and called us to, it requires a combination of peace plus push. We need both. 
peace and push. If it's all push, that just becomes a mean and cruel system, no relief, no satisfaction, no contentment, no peace. But if it's all peace and no push, it's just junk food, and we get lazy. Mark Sayers is a pastor, podcaster, writer in Australia, and he's put it like this. Many can miss out on the spiritual growth that occurs in times of challenge. When something is challenging or difficult, we often retreat. Our culture has created the idea of comfort zones, the idea that we can be both successful while avoiding discomfort. However, this myth prevents us from growing and moving into renewal. If it's all me all the time, I'm part of the problem, not part of the solution. And I was actually talking to a director of a Christian counseling center in another part of the country this summer, and we were comparing notes about stuff, and I said, hey, am I crazy where it seems a little bit like self-care is getting out of control sometimes in our cultural moment? And she said, 100%. Like never before in a Christian counseling center, we are being ghosted by people that begin therapy and counseling with us. And the moment that people disengage like never before is when we try to talk about sin. Gently, lovingly, caringly, but it's the mention of, hey, like we've been listening to issues, problems, struggles a lot, and all of that's great, super important. Can we now talk about, hey, where's, where, where's your hand contributing not to the good but to the bad in this situation? Can we talk about some sin? And this includes people that have grown up in the church, lifelong Christians that ostensibly should be very comfortable with categories of sin. Hey, we're not all that. The Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made, noble, beautiful. That's how God created us, but we're also broken in sin. Anytime the needle points to the latter, we're out. In older terms, some of our theological forebearers, the Puritans in England, said that to really grow in Jesus, you need two parts, sanctification and mortification. And I realize, you know, those aren't common words nowadays. I don't use them commonly either. That's sanctification. The Spirit is sanctus. That's where we grow up in the Holy Spirit. But then mortification, mort, that's where there are things inside of us that need to die. But if all we're pursuing above all else and at all cost is this perfect equilibrium of no distress and contentment all the time, that's not what God has called us to do and we're not even going to ever arrive, arrive there because here's another issue. If your goal is personal peace all the time and that internal feeling of everything is absolutely right because I'm feeling it in this moment, if your absolute foundation is the inner self, you're always going to be unstable because so is the inner self. Right? Think about your own heart, your own emotional life over any period of time. Can any of us say, we have been exactly the same in our emotional lives over the years or even more recently? I think many of us, all of us, we are all over the place. And if that's what we're trying to build upon as a solid foundation, it is shifting sand. There was an Italian guy in the... I'd say he's from South Philly, but, you know, they live in Jersey now. We live in Jersey now. There aren't any Philadelphians anymore. They all live in New Jersey. Sorry. Did, did that come out? Uh, 
guy in Italy, Italy, in the early 1800s, who wrote, he was not a person of faith, Giacomo Leopardi. Uh, he was a classicist, a linguist, but had some issues with the Romantic movement in Europe, uh, which in some ways is a precursor to where we are. And he critiques this idea of just journeying towards the inner self is all you need to do. He puts it this way, we often make the common mistake of believing that people start off with a plan of action and follow it through. When our nature, composed of a hundred passions, is always a mass of contradictions. That's what our inner self is. With first one passion and then another gaining the upper hand, and people constantly change their ideas about which aim or self is better than another. That's just what we are. We need an external anchor. So as you look at one, Psalm 126, as we look to the scriptural story in general, what we're pursuing and should be, what our goal is, is not just this inner core of who we are, self, but it's a place. It's outside of us. When the Lord restored our fortunes, when the Lord restored Zion, that's a place. And if you look at the end of the psalm here with all of these agricultural metaphors, sowing, reaping, in its original context, those aren't just fancy ideas for other things. That's actual hands and tools in the dirt and real crops going, and you can't have that without place, physical land. That's where we're going in Christ. And this idea of Zion, Zion before Jesus, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that was a vision of God's perfect place with God's people for all time. And when Jesus comes, fulfilling all of the ancient story of the Israelites and all of the promises that God has made to us through Israel and his Scriptures, when Jesus is crucified and resurrected, he has inaugurated a kingdom of God that's going to culminate in a new heavens and new earth. That's the place. That's the fulfillment of the Zion idea, not an ephemeral concept, but a place that's coming. And that's the place where we really want to go. There's a vision of the end at the end of the Bible in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Zion, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things has passed away. Should we want to be whole people? Yes, absolutely. That is a creational desire and impulse. But the Bible comes back and adds, and if you're somebody that's still figuring out spiritual realities, maybe a lot of skepticism, you're not sure where you are with all this Christianity stuff, hear this. Whole people can only exist in whole places. And for us to be whole people... We need a whole place. And that's what Jesus is going to give to us. And we look there. So when it gets sad, as it does for all of us at different times, when the tears and the sorrows in the language of Psalm 126 multiply, look ahead and look up. And it might be a little flippant to put it this way, 
but treat it like the best vacation ever. Best vacation ever. Now, some of us, we may never have taken a good vacation or never taken uh, you know, anything that would remotely qualify as best vacation ever. Whether you can look back in your past and say, I've been on some of those dream vacations, dream trips, or you can just picture, this is what it might be like. If you have that dream vacation in front of you, it makes your present easier. Doesn't it? Wouldn't it? Like, wow, this is really tough right now. But I'm going to go see Mickey Mouse in a little while. I'm going to go to Epcot and all those little miniatures of places around the world and a lot of furry things. That's going to be great. That's my dream vacation. And it anchors you. Whatever is ahead anchors you in what's now. The Christian hope gives you that solid expectation that comes back and grants hope for the present. How do we get there? Is it a grind or is it a gift? Now, with this sermon and last one, the four total sets of alternatives, they were either or for the first three. Cheating here a little bit. This is a both and. Is getting to that place where we really want to go, is it a matter of our work, grinding it out, or is it a gift from God? It's kind of both. Do we have to labor for it, or is it free? But to me, this captures the exquisite balance that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And it's this. The gospel of Jesus demands everything from you, but Jesus paid it all. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands everything from you, but Jesus paid it all. This is in the historic hymnody of the church. On one hand, we'll sing, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But then we sing, Jesus paid it all. Or it's even in that one song. I don't know if it's sung regularly at Liberty Riverwards. It's okay if not. But Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We're a debtor to grace alone. On one hand, however, that means we get to work and we grind it out. That's what these images are in verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Liberty Pastors, we were on retreat this past week. Stephen Wood is a champion zipliner. That's not a metaphor. And we were in western Pennsylvania farm country farming all around. And there aren't mountains in western Pennsylvania, but it's really hilly. And for, for generations before internal combustion, there were farmers out there with horses, mules, and plows that would follow the contours of hills and rocky soil and do the work day in and day out. And to this day, it's really, really hard. But they're sowing. And occasionally they reap. That's the Christian life. 
And that metaphor carries into the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says at one point, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There's an inward part to this for sure. The obedience of faith, Paul calls it. To sow within yourself, that means in gospel obedience, giving gospel yeses and gospel noes to our unruly hearts and our unruly behaviors. You know you're following Jesus when you have those moments of holy discomfort and stretching where, hey, God is calling me to this, but this feels better to me right now. And when you actually move to the former at cost, that's sowing. That's grinding. That's doing work. That's what we're called to, to make ourselves purposefully uncomfortable in the present for the sake of gospel obedience, the sake of the kingdom of God, the sake of being able to proclaim in our own hearts that God's way actually is wise, better, more beautiful, more fulfilling in the long term for me than whatever this is right here. And that's hard. But as we make ourselves uncomfortable for our friends, for our families, for our communities, whether inside of the church or outside of the church, when we show up, on the block or in the neighborhood in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. Netflix or a community meeting? Which one should I go to? When we push against racial biases that we might have of one kind or another and say, Jesus is calling me to something different than these patterns that I've inherited and I'm perpetuating in different ways. It means maybe an occasional, hey, uh, I might not do this when you tell your boss that. Whatever the cost is, grind it out, grind it out, grind it out. That's when we live, speak, and serve as Jesus' very presence. And it is hard work, and sometimes when you sow, you have to wait a really long time to see any fruit. It doesn't pop up overnight. When it comes to me and plants, and I say this at Liberty Collingswood all, 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 all the time, I, I love people. You know there's a butt coming. But I find plants difficult, and my wife Emily and I, we are inveterate plant killers. We, we don't want to be, but it's just hard. Plants are hard. You've got to tend to them. You've got to water them. So for, for me, my idea of nice sowing is a chia putt. Like, this is awesome. But sowing is difficult, and yet that's what we're called to do. Grind. What is God calling you to grind right now? But the upshot is, will it ever be enough? Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City who died recently. He would contrast the last words of the Buddha and the last words of Jesus. And this isn't to specifically personally throw Buddha under the bus, but instead just to contrast systems here. Reportedly, Buddha's last words were, strive unceasingly. Strive unceasingly. Among Jesus' last words on the cross, it is finished. And where we're going is ultimately not a matter of our grinding, but a matter of God's gifting freely. And as modern people, we might not realize it, but the couple of images that we encounter in verses 4 to 6 of Psalm 126, they are incredibly, strikingly, stunningly contrastive. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. There's one. And then the agricultural, 
Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy, going out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, coming home shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. Streams in the Negev is an incredibly different image than all this sowing and all this grinding. And to us, it just sounds like Bible, 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 Bible. The Negev, I forget if I mentioned this last time, is an incredibly arid and dry place in the ancient Near East, most of the time desert. But occasionally there would be a flash flood, the skies would open, sudden rain would come down, and the Negev was known for flourishing overnight. One day, bone-dry desert. The next day after a rain, it's a lush garden. And any farmer or any person in that agrarian context would say, hey, look at the Negev today. It is beautiful. Did we work for that? No. Did we sow there? No. Did we grind it out there? No. Did we plan for it? No. Did we compel it? No. But God brought it. He showed up and did it. Graciously, miraculously, beautifully. God sent water and gave leaf. Where do we find that water? In John's gospel, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Come to me. To mix a couple sayings of Jesus, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and out of you will flow streams of living water. Come to this Jesus by faith. Come to this Jesus again. In all of your dryness, all of your discouragement, all of your being ground down by the grind in various ways, say, Jesus, fill me. Jesus, let me know your living water for myself. And remember that it came and comes to us at cost. Ironically, again, Jesus says, out of me will flow streams of living water for whoever believes in me. Another one of the last words on the cross of Jesus, the one who said, I am the fountain of living water on the cross said, I thirst. Jesus put himself in the place of the Negev. The cross is that bone-dry desert place where Jesus took on himself the wrath of God for sin that we deserved to pave by his blood a way out. It comes at cost. The gospel demands everything, but Jesus paid it all. Flannery O'Connor, 20th century writer, Remarked then, and I think it's true now, the reader of today is indeed looking for redemption, and rightly so. But what he has forgotten is the cost of it. His sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether, and so he has forgotten the price of restoration. But Jesus has paid it. Forgiveness, spirit, new life. But by faith, by grace alone, those in Jesus, we are going to get to that place where we really want to go because of the Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.